Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. As we continue our study in Luke's Gospel this morning, our scripture reading is Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 875. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 14. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, that is all the things that Jesus had just been teaching, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word, inspired by Your Spirit. And so we ask now that You would pour out that same Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to to open our minds, to understand and to receive Your Word, Father that we might understand what is being said, that we might receive it with joy, and that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read through the Gospels, it is sometimes challenging to understand exactly why the author put a particular text after the previous text. It's sometimes difficult to discern what the, the flow of thought is. And so I think it's important for us to, to step back and to uh, review what we've seen over the course of the last uh, few Sundays in Luke's Gospel. You'll remember that Luke chapter 15 began with the Pharisees grumbling about Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners. All the tax collectors and sinners, we're told, were were flocking to Jesus. They were coming to to hear him. And when the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes saw these sorts of people coming to Jesus, they didn't give thanks to God for the great work of the gospel going on. Rather, they grumbled and they complained. They wondered why God would associate, or why Jesus, Jesus would associate with such people, especially why he would eat with them. It just didn't make any sense to them. And so in chapter 15, Jesus gives us three parables, each of which highlights for us God's delight in saving repentant sinners. You have the parable of the lost sheep, where the the shepherd goes after the one of of a hundred that is lost. You have the, the parable of the lost coin, where the woman searches diligently for the one lost coin. You have the parable of the prodigal son, where the father waits expectantly and receives back with joy the son who has wandered off into a far country. But you'll remember that that third parable, the the parable we normally refer to as the parable of the prodigal son, that it actually has a, a second character, a second lost son, the elder brother. 
And we recognize that Jesus puts that second character into that parable in order to uh, teach the Pharisees to whom he is speaking that not only does God rejoice in saving lost sinners, but that they are among the lost. That the elder brother, while not lost in the same way as the younger brother, is nevertheless as lost as the younger brother. That he is just as disconnected, just as, as, as estranged from his father, and therefore just in, as in need of his receiving mercy. But you'll remember that at the end of that parable, the, the Pharisees are left silent. They don't accept the invitation. They don't come in, but rather they, they stand far off. They, they keep their distance. And it's this that brings us to chapter 16. In chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to teach them the importance of being shrewd. Now in context, that means living with an eternal perspective. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it is vital that the children of light live with eternity in view. They need to live now with an understanding that the eternal life is of more significance, of more weight, of more value than this temporal life. It reminds me of what Jesus says elsewhere when he asks simply, what does it gain a man, or what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Eternity matters. The temporal is subordinate to the eternal, and it's those who know of this eternal life, those who, who know that this eternal life has been secured for them by Christ, as the, the children of light, we must live with that eternity in view. Now, the the teaching is clear enough, but why exactly Jesus puts this teaching about shrewdness after the parables in chapter 15 is is not as easy to discern. Obviously, Luke thought that that this teaching was was important to follow what he had just told us in, in chapter 15. But how do they relate? seems to me that uh, the teaching in, in chapter 16 is Jesus' response to the Pharisees' rejection of the Father's invitation. You see, the Father had invited the elder brother to come in, to enter into his joy, to, to rejoice in this grace shown to sinners. But the Pharisees were unwilling to acknowledge that they were as lost as their younger brother. They were unwilling to acknowledge that they too were sinners and therefore they were unwilling to celebrate the grace shown to the younger brother. And they were unwilling to accept that grace themselves. And Jesus is saying to his disciples and to the Pharisees who are overhearing what is going on, that their unwillingness to acknowledge their sins and their unwillingness to receive grace is evidence that they are far too concerned with this life. That they are far too concerned with the pleasures and the treasures and the the wealth, what Jesus calls the mammon of this present evil age. You see, Jesus is commenting on the utter foolishness of the Pharisees. The, the, the Pharisees are doing the very thing that Jesus called foolish. They are losing their souls for the sake of gaining this world. The Pharisees value this life. They, they, they value the praise and the, the pleasures of this life more than they value their own souls. More than they value eternal life. 
And so Jesus tells them this parable of the dishonest manager to say, listen, you need to be more shrewd. But of course, the Pharisees don't necessarily agree with Jesus' assessment. The Pharisees don't necessarily agree that they are devaluing the age to come. In fact, I think they would claim exactly the opposite. They're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can you possibly say that we're not concerned about the age to come? We've devoted our whole life to being ready for the age to come. That's, that's everything that we're about. And that's the controversy that is at the center of the verses before us this morning. You see, Jesus has, has told about God's delight in forgiving sinners. And he's told the Pharisees that they are sinners in need of that grace. And he has then told his disciples that look at the Pharisees and learn from them because their rejection of grace is actually testimony to the fact that they love this world rather than the age to come. And the Pharisees, we're told, ridicule him. That's what we're told right there in in verse 14. When When the Pharisees hear all this teaching, when they hear all the things that Jesus is saying, they ridicule him. Now, this is one of those places where we would like the the gospel writers to give us a little bit more detail. We'd like for them to to tell us exactly what the nature of this ridicule was. It doesn't seem likely that the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus for saying that eternal life matters. The Pharisees, remember, are the ones who believed in the resurrection. They had an ongoing controversy with the Sadducees of their day. The the Sadducees denied the resurrections. The the Pharisees held on to the resurrections. They, They understood that there was eternal life, and they understood that eternal life mattered. And as I said, that was really the the whole goal of their existence. They had devoted themselves to keeping the law. That's what a Pharisee is. A, A Pharisee is one who has set himself apart for the law. They were the holy ones. Jesus tells us elsewhere that they, they didn't just tithe their paycheck. They, they tithed the gardens in their backyard. These people were serious about the law, and they were serious about the law because they believed that it was through the law that they were securing their blessing in the age to come. And so it's not likely that the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus for, for talking about the afterlife. Now, there are those today who might do that. There are those today who are just sort of secularist in their worldview. They are naturalistic in their worldview. And they think all you, all you religious people talking about pie in the sky, you know, that's not real. You just need to make the most of this life. That's not the Pharisees. They believed in eternal life. They understood that there was a life to come, and so therefore preparing for it made perfect sense. But if that's not what they're ridiculing Jesus for, what is the the object of their ridicule? Why do they ridicule Jesus' teaching if they believe in eternal life? Well, it seems clear to me at least that, that the most likely answer is that they are ridiculing Jesus, not for saying that eternal life matters, but for saying that they weren't prepared for it. Really, Jesus, you're going to tell us that we're not shrewd? You're going to tell us that we're not preparing for eternal life? Have you seen my daily schedule? Have you seen the things I do? You know, I task, I fast on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I, I, I keep the Sabbath religiously. I've never walked more than 30 steps. I never carry more than three pounds. I, I, I am a religious person. I am prepared for the age to come. It is utter foolishness, Jesus, for you to say that I am not prepared, that I'm not properly valuing eternal life. In fact, they point to their scrupulous obedience to the law and they say, this is my preparation. How dare you say I'm not prepared? 
But what Jesus does is Jesus points at that same scrupulous obedience and says, it's not evidence for you. It's actually evidence against you. It actually proves that you love this life. Let's see how Jesus makes his case. There are are two points here that Jesus is going to drive home. First, Jesus is going to show us the obedience that God hates. And then he is going to show us the obedience that God requires. And he's going to suggest to us in context that the Pharisees fall short on both ends. And I'll just tell you now, I'll just going to prepare you, there's no way we're getting through both points this morning. So uh, don't get nervous because you see them both in your outline. That was my intention uh, when I printed that outline, but it's not going to happen. So we're, we're going to be focusing on the first one this morning. This morning we're going to be focusing on the obedience that God hates. And that's strong language. We're not used to speaking that way. We're not used to, to speaking about things that God hates. But I actually saw a series of blog articles recently in which one of the guys that I like to read, a, a pastor up in Canada named Tim Challies, he, he actually wrote a whole series of articles on things that God hates. And he just went through the Bible and he looked at all the things that the Bible says God hates. And, and the list is surprisingly long. And this is one of them. Here we have obedience... Obedience to his law, conformity to his standards, but it's an obedience that he hates. So let's see if we can understand why God would ever hate obedience. And notice the first thing that we are told here about the Pharisees is that they are lovers of money. That fits well in the context, does it not? This is what Jesus has been talking about. He said the very essence of being unshrewd or being unwise is that you love money. You love mammon. You serve it rather than God. You you prioritize the treasures and the pleasures and the prestige of this life over the age to come. And so the first thing that that we're told here is that the Pharisees are such people. That the the Pharisees, despite appearances, despite what uh, the community around them might think, the Pharisees are unwise people. They are lovers of money. And next, we're told that because of their love of money, they ridiculed Jesus' teaching, as we just saw. They, they ridiculed this idea that they were unprepared. They, they didn't believe that what Jesus was saying. They didn't believe what, that, that Jesus would, would tell them uh, that they were unprepared for the age to come. But as we begin to look at this, what do we see? Notice what Jesus says. Jesus replies to their ridicule by saying, You are those who justify yourselves before men. So the Pharisees ridicule Jesus. And as we see, as we saw, they ridicule him because of their devotion to the law. They said, listen, we of all people are prepared for the age to come. And Jesus says, no, no. You are those who justify yourselves before men. You are those who who are concerned about this life and about your reputation here and about your appearance here rather than in the age to come. So really this is just a restatement of the earlier charge. They are lovers of money. They are lovers of this life. They are lovers of this world. They are those who serve mammon rather than God. But how can Jesus make this charge? Well, it comes down to this. It comes down to the fact that motivation matters. Notice what Jesus says. He says, "God, God knows your heart. He says, yes, you are law keepers. Yes, you you keep the law. 
But motivation matters. What your heart, where your heart is, matters. Whom you are trying to please matters to God. It reminds me of what God had to tell Samuel when he sent him to anoint one of uh, Jesse's sons. Remember, Saul had been the first king of Israel, but Saul had been rejected for his unbelief and for his sins against, against God. And God said, I have a new king, uh, and he is going to be a king after my own heart. Go to Jesse's house, and you're going to anoint one of his sons. And so Samuel goes, and when he gets there, he, he finds the oldest son of Jesse. He thinks, well, surely this is the one. And God says, no, not him. And then he moves on down the line. He says, well, okay, maybe it's the second born. He's still pretty impressive. Third, fourth. And God keeps saying, no, no, it's not him. And finally, all the sons of Jesse that are there have, 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 been, have passed before Samuel. And God has, has said no to them all. He says, none of these are the ones. And Samuel is, is confused at this point. He says, okay, Jesse, do you have any more kids? Because, you know, God told me to come here, but he said it wasn't any of these. And finally, Jesse says, well, I do have another young son. He's out in the field right now keeping watch over the the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him here. And it's at this point that that God says to Samuel, he says, listen, you look on outward appearance, but I look at the heart. The heart matters. Motivation matters. It's the point that Jesus is making here to The Pharisees, it's not simply what what the externals say, but it is what is going on in the heart. And so this is what Jesus wants us to see. It's why Jesus elsewhere warns His disciples to beware of doing their good works in order to be seen by men. Remember when Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, listen, there's a righteousness that is required of you. He, He said it right at the beginning of the sermon. He said, listen, your righteousness actually needs to be greater than that of the Pharisees. And then he begins to explain what that means by by looking at the Old Testament law and saying, you think the law against adultery is tough, but I'm telling you that the law against adultery actually forbids even adultery in your heart. You think that the, the command against murder is tough, but I'm telling you that it includes even hatred in your heart. And God begins to expound on the righteousness that he requires. But then he turns and says, but there is a righteousness that I hate. <laughs> There is a righteousness that is not acceptable in my eyes, and you need to beware of doing your righteous deeds in order to be seen by others. When we do righteousness, when we do the things that God requires, because it makes us look impressive in the eyes of others, God looks with disdain on that. God knows our hearts. He knows why we do certain things. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, God is not fooled by your external conformity. Elsewhere, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you are white on the outside, but inside you are full, you are full of all manner of wickedness. You're full of all manner of unrighteousness. God knows what's going on in your heart when you tithe on your vegetable garden. God knows what's going on in your heart when you keep the Sabbath so scrupulously. He knows you are more concerned with the status that those things confer. It's why you love to pray on street corners, he says. You, you love to make these long prayers on street corners. You, you love to, uh, to announce it with trumpets when you give your alms. Now, I doubt they were doing that literally. You know, I doubt that they were you know, blowing the, the trumpet when they walked into the church to, to give their alms, but the point is still clear. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew 
what they were doing because it was the status, it was the the prestige, it was the, the reputation of the community that they were after. That's why... That's why they obeyed. That's why they were so righteous. They wanted everybody to know that they were righteous. They did their righteous deeds to be seen by men. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't say being seen doing righteous deeds is itself a problem. In fact, in that same sermon, Jesus commands his disciples to allow his, their good deeds to be seen by men. He, he says, you're a light on a hill. Do your good deeds so that everybody can see them so that people will give praise to God. And so doing your good deeds in public is not the problem. It's the question of motivation. Why are you doing them? Are you doing them in order to garner the praise of men? Or are you doing them in order to please the one who is your Father in heaven? And Jesus says, listen, God knows your hearts and He cares about your motivation. In fact, notice what He says next. He says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He says, no, you exalt yourselves, Jesus says. You exalt yourselves in the eyes of men. But God is not impressed. In fact, more than that, He hates such obedience. Again, this doesn't mean that that if if men think well of you that you are necessarily hated by God. Again, that's not what Jesus is is saying. Even in our culture, there is still at least some remnant of respect for for loyalty and for faithfulness and for for truth-telling. And and the fact that those things are honored among men doesn't mean that God hates them. That's not what Jesus is saying. That would be absurd. But rather, what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you do those things in order to exalt yourself in the sight of God... The righteousness is no longer regarded as righteousness. The righteousness is now regarded as a bribe offered to an honest king. And what does an honest judge do with the bribe? He looks on it with disdain and he casts it out of his sight. He is not impressed. So Jesus says, when you seek to exalt yourself in the sight of God... You make yourself as filthy rags before Him. When you seek to exalt yourself in in the eyes of men, you make yourself an abomination in God's sight. But why? Why Why would this be so problematic? Well, think about it this way. Imagine imagine a guy is out on on a date with, with a girl that he is possibly interested in uh, in courting. But while he is on this date, his, his eye is caught by another. And now all of a sudden, he is being extra kind to his date, not for the sake of his date, but for the sake that this other woman will notice what a good guy he, he is. All of a sudden, he's, he's doing these things in order to be seen by another. And you may that, that sounds preposterous, but my dad will tell you that, you know, the first time he went out on a date with his mom, my date, my mom was actually somebody else's date. <laughs> You know, and, and it wasn't too long into that day before he realized, that's the one that I'm interested in. And when you begin to act kind here so that someone else will notice, it's not hard for us to figure out that, that the first girl's not going to receive that as, as just a sign of how good a guy this is. It's going to be somewhat distasteful in her her side. And so when we begin to, when we begin to obey God, not for the sake of pleasing God, but for the sake of impressing our neighbors and for the sake of patting our reputation and for the sake of, of making people think well of us, it is 
distasteful to God. It is an abomination in His sight. And so we are forced to ask ourselves, what is our true motivation? Why is it our, that we are interested in the, in the law? Why is it that we are interested in righteousness? Why is it that we are interested in obeying our King? It has been said many times that one of the best ways to, to check your motivation is to check what you're doing when no one is looking or when no one's going to find out. Have you ever subjected yourself to that kind of self-examination? Have you ever taken the time to wonder, well, well, what do I do when no one's looking? (laughs) How interested am I in righteousness when God is the only audience? When, When my neighbors don't see? When no one is going to be impressed? Is it my delight, or as Jesus said in His conversation with the woman at the well, is it my bread, is it my nourishment to do the will of my Father... Or is it my nourishment to be seen as righteous by my neighbors? What is it that I'm really after? I think we can begin to to check our motivation. And and when we do, we, we begin to see that we are maybe more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. We, we are driven by the fear of man. We, we are driven by the desire to, to garner praise. We, we are concerned with our reputations here and now. And it is far easier for us to sin when no one's looking. It is far easier for us to, to set aside the requirements of the law when we're pretty sure no one is going to find out. And Jesus says, we do such things because we're lovers of money. Because we're lovers of the treasures of this earth. Because we're not very shrewd. Because we value this temporal life more than the eternal life of the age to come. So Jesus is is challenging us. He's challenging us to to consider our motives. He's, He's challenging us to consider why we obey and if we wonder, well, what can we do about this? How can we, how can we begin to, to see our hearts transform? Notice what Jesus says next. Because I think what he says next begins to, to point us in the direction of discovering how to, to, to find the redemption we so desperately need. What does he say? He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. If you're reading through the Gospel of, of Luke and you're, you're moving at a fairly good clip and you're covering a few chapters a day, you, you come to this verse and you probably go, huh? How, how does that follow? Is, is this a complete non sequitur? How is this connected to what Jesus was just talking about? At first, the connection doesn't seem clear, but but as we begin to meditate upon what Jesus is saying, I I think his logic begins to emerge. Let's think about what Jesus is saying here. The law and the prophets, we know what that is, right? That's a standard way of of referring to the Old Testament. Alright? So so the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And he says that the law and the prophets were until 
John. Who is that? Well, clearly, that is a reference to John the Baptist, the, the sort of first character of the, of the gospel narratives. And even though his story is recorded for us in the New Testament, he is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. So, so here we have the, the law and the prophets were until John. The Old Covenant was in, fe- in effect until John. But remember, when John's ministry comes to an end, when John is arrested, Jesus begins... Jesus begins his public ministry. And what Jesus is saying here is when John the Baptist brought to a conclusion the Old Testament era, I inaugurated the new. And since I, since my advent, since I have gone public with my ministry, the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus showed up doing, is it not? He showed up proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that the the long-promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king who is going to bring to completion all of God's promises, that that king is finally here. The king has has finally arrived. The horn of salvation that God promised in the Old Testament has finally come. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says this salvation is available to whom? It is available to all who receive me. In the Old Testament, how did you express your faith in the promises of God? You expressed your faith in the promises of God by submitting to the Old Testament law. You didn't save yourselves through the law, but it was through the law that your faith found expression by by submitting to the covenant of the Old Testament. But now that Jesus has arrived, those Old Testament laws that were all pointing to Him, they have been fulfilled. And how does faith express itself now? How do you now receive this salvation that is not just being promised, but is actually being delivered? You receive it. How do you receive it? faith in Jesus Christ. It's by your response to, to Him. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, everyone who hears the good news of the kingdom, they are pushing their way to get in. They are like, you know, the people, you know, lined up outside the Apple store when, you know, uh, they're about to release a new iPhone. They are pushing their way to get in. They are anxious to, to get this good thing that is now finally being delivered. And so if you have ears to hear the gospel You are flocking to Christ. Like who? Like the sinners and the tax collectors at the beginning of chapter 15. They are the ones who are coming. They are the ones who who have heard the gospel. But the Pharisees, they keep a distance. They stand at a distance. They want to hold on to the Old Testament patterns. Why? Why are these Old Testament patterns so precious to to the Pharisees? Well, think about it. If tax collectors and sinners can get in through this New Testament gospel, well, that's, that's not very good for building your reputation. You know, if, if grace is offered to people like them, then, then what's the great status of, of being in? There's no great reputation there. You know, it, it's like you know, going to the tournament where everyone gets a participation award. Well, if everybody gets the same award, you're not, you're not pointing to your ribbon and say, look at how great I did. It's only when it's earned that you can boast. And this new gospel undercuts the boast of the Pharisees. They boasted in the law. They they claimed that they had established their own righteousness with God. They claimed that they were the ones deserving of this salvation. And Jesus shows up and says, no. The salvation that God promised in the Old Testament, it's not for the righteous. It's for sinners. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. 
I came for those who acknowledge that they have fallen short and whose only hope is my mercy. Whose only plea is my grace. This is who the gospel is for. And the Pharisees say, I'm not interested in a gospel like that. Why? Because what they really care about is not the reward of eternal life with their Father in heaven, but what they really care about are the treasures and the pleasures and the prestige of this life. And this new gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, it doesn't give them that. It it undercuts their boast. It, It takes away their pride. And they are simply not interested. But... We can hear that gospel. We can understand what Jesus is saying. And we can acknowledge that, Father, we are sinners. We are sinners desperately in need of grace. We are sinners who, if we stood before you upon our own record, we would have no hope. If we, if we stood before you based upon our own record, we would deserve from you only condemnation. But now... We are forcing our way in because you have offered us a salvation that is by grace and by grace alone. This is what Jesus is challenging the Pharisees with. He says, listen, if you reject the gospel of grace, it's because you are lovers of money. It's because you are lovers of this world. It's because your goals and your ambitions are are for prestige and for power and for, for fame here and now. So again, we must ask ourselves, do we, do we resist grace? Do we, do we begrudge grace given to others? Do we cling to certain rules, to certain you know, traditions, to certain taboos that allow us to establish our own righteousness in the sight of men? Or do we delight to be sinners forgiven by grace and by grace alone? This is the challenge that Jesus is forcing on the Pharisees. And he says to them plainly, you reject the gospel. You you keep your distance rather than flocking into the kingdom because you are lovers of money. May we hear the warning. May we hear the warning. And may we recognize that while this gospel undercuts our pride, while while it takes away our boast, it in fact gives so much more. It takes away our boast and, and those treasures that, that are going to turn to dust, those, those treasures that are going to be lost or stolen, those, those treasures that are going to be destroyed by rust and moth. It, it takes away the boast of such things, but it offers us the treasures of heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. It, it offers us an inheritance in the kingdom where we can abide, not just enjoying the benefits of heaven, but living as beloved children of our Father. That is the offer. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear this gospel, you will flock. You will give up the righteousness that that brings you fame. You will acknowledge yourself to be a sinner. And you will receive freely the grace that He offers you, a grace that can be received by faith and by faith alone. And because such grace is offered, because such treasures are freely offered to all who will have them, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen.
Let us believe it together. Father God, this is your gospel. Father God, when we examine our hearts, we see that we are, we are more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. Father, we, we are radically concerned with our reputation. We are radically concerned with, uh, with our standing here and now. Father, set us free. Set us free, Father, from such foolishness. Set us free from, from such boasting. That we might boast only in the Lord. That we might boast only that we are sinners saved by grace. Father, may you open our eyes to, to love and sing and wonder at the grace that has been shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may this gospel penetrate our hearts, may it renew our minds, and may it transform our lives all to the praise of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.